Thanks for tuning in and welcome to the latest episode of Unspun, a podcast by Population. This week, we're going to talk to Marissa Adler about the importance of systems change and how the fashion and home textiles industries manage waste. Don't go away. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome to Unspun, a podcast by Population, unraveling what's holding us back from regeneration and liberation in the fashion and home industries. I'm Lauren Hill. I'm Catherine Tedrow. And I'm Danielle Arzaga. And this week, we're excited to talk to Marissa Adler about the global waste supply chain. With over a decade working in recycling systems, Marissa is a prominent voice in the conversation to move the industry toward change at a crucial tipping point for the climate crisis. Hey, Marissa. Hi, how are you? Thank you so much for being with us today. So Marissa, you occupy a really interesting space in the industry. How was it that you came to where you're at? And what does that really look like for you? Yeah, I do find myself in a pretty unique space when when we're talking about textile circularity. Um, I come to it from a waste and recycling perspective. And that's been my focus throughout my career is waste and recycling. I studied natural resource management and conservation through school. And then I worked for a couple of local solid waste departments and before I moved to the New York City Department of Sanitation, where I really got a taste of what it's like to run massive waste and recycling programs for a very large megacity. And so after that, I moved to a consulting firm called Resource Recycling Systems, or RRS, and that's where I am today. And that's where I've really been able to focus my efforts across different material types and product types, but with a very strong emerging focus on textiles, fashion, apparel, um, upholstery waste, and focus here in the U.S. So I'm really excited to be joining the industry and their conversations around circular textiles and, you know, learning a lot about the textile supply chain, manufacturing, um, production, uh, material sourcing, because that's not my background. My background really comes from how do you develop scalable systems to collect and process materials to put them back into the supply chain. So yeah, that's the perspective I bring. I'm curious, when you with RRS started working in the textile space was, I mean, it was around the time probably that we started seeing numbers from Goodwill and that there's 86% of our wastes or textile wastes going to landfill or being incinerated. I'm sure you have lots of stats that you'll probably share with us today. And this, the system, we started realizing how complicated the system was, or you guys already knew, but we, the rest of the textile industry, I think started kind of waking up to it. But something I think we're still waking up to is the systemic issues. And what do you think are some of the systemic issues that affect the textile waste collection and recycling system? Yeah, well, there are systemic issues uh, that we're going to have to start addressing. And it is a very complex recovery value chain when you're thinking about, you know, how do you start shifting the system to circular? You know, I've also been learning about all the nuances of of the used clothing trade and, and how things are collected, where things go. And then how that fits back into some kind of uh, demand for new products and new materials. But one of the systemic problems that we're facing is overconsumption, right? It's just the consumer mindset. We really have to find a way to decouple consumption and 
profit and prosperity. Because as long as those are reliant upon each other, we're just going to continue to make and produce and waste. So that's one of the systemic things. And, and I think that's starting to change here in the U.S. One of the things that we have to keep in mind, though, is that we can consider ourselves lucky that we are comfortable enough in our developed economy where we can start saying we can slow down, we can start creating slower um, supply chains and less consumption. But there are many other parts of the world that are underdeveloped and their economies are maturing and they want to be just as prosperous as the United States, right? And so it's hard for us to tell them, no, you can't, you know, follow the same track to development that the United States has followed and that other developed countries have followed because of the impact on our natural resources, on our environment, on our climate. So that's a place I spend a lot of time thinking about. How do we change that endemic you know, way of thinking that capitalism and increased consumption is, is the way to reach you know, more developed economies? I appreciate that you brought that up. And we actually have some questions a little later later on specific to the issues of production and consumption and, you know, how, how far we can go in progress and circularity without looking at those issues. To go specifically to a circularity component, we're curious what you think is needed to increase the possibility of textile to textile recycling specifically in the system. We need a lot. We need a lot. There are many gaps that we need to fill. And that's the exciting part for me is that there are so many opportunities to really dig in and explore new territory, do new research, and really forge, uh, you know, new networks and connections. But yeah, there, you know, one of the major bottlenecks right now is that even if textiles were collected at scale, we don't have sorting facilities that can adequately handle the volumes of materials that would be coming in. And that could produce enough of and the right kinds of grades that end markets are looking for. Whether that's, you know, reuse end markets for local charities and thrift, um, whether that's reuse for re-commerce channels, like brand segregated materials or segregated based on other attributes of the textile product, like, um, you know, women's of a certain, you know, size or color or style. And then also the fiber sorting for fiber to fiber recycling. We don't quite know enough about what are the specifications that the chemical recyclers need in order to feed their facilities. And not only the fiber composition, but what other additives and treatments and chemicals are problematic for those systems. And then how do we pre-process any of that fiber sorted material to remove trim and buttons and zippers and other hardware? And how do we size reduce it? Or how do we make sure it's the exact right size that they need to be able to put it into the front end of their system? And who does the pre-processing? Are they looking for it to come perfectly, you know, packaged that they could just open up a bale and, you know, dump it right into their, into their, their line or, do they have a system up front for pre-processing? And so a lot of those questions are really unanswered. Chemical um, recyclers are definitely not the ones that are wanting to sit there and do the cutting and of, uh, you know, zippers and buttons and everything out. I mean, yeah, it's just such a, such a manual 
manual task. It's a hugely manual process right now. And so we've got to look at how can we automate it? Are there ways to automate it? Are there certain shredders and magnets that can be used to automate that process? Are there ways of designing for disassembly? And then, you know, those chemical recyclers too, there are questions about what can they afford to pay for feedstock based on the, the quality and the, the format of the textiles. And that's sort of on what their suppliers or what their end markets are going to pay for the recycled fiber at the end or the recycled yarn or whatever it should be. So it's because these markets don't exist and these relationships don't exist yet, even really at a pilot scale, like a fully circular loop at a, at a pilot or a demonstration scale, those things don't quite exist. And even if they did exist at a small scale, it's not very informative as to how the, the economics will change at scale. And so it's going to be one of those, like, we're all going to have to just agree to take on the risk together as long as we distribute the risk among ourselves and just, you know, two steps forward, one step back every time until we reach, you know, a a market for it. Do you know of any sort of innovations or things that are happening in this space that are of note or that are interesting? A lot of the trade groups and, you know, member organizations are having conversations, member-focused conversations around these topics where there's information sharing, where there's, you know, brainstorming about what would work, what wouldn't work. The Sustainable Furnishings Council is one of those groups. They're focused on, you know, upholstery fabrics. When you're talking about textile, they also focus on wood and metal and other things that go into making furniture. But from the textile space, there's, there's topics around upholstery and circularity and waste and recovery. The Textile Exchange has the RPET working group and several other home and hospitality working groups, several other working groups that are also exploring these topics. I think that different companies, there are different startups and business models that are uh, emerging to tackle different parts of the recovery value chain. You know, there's connected technology companies that are looking at how do we make the supply chain more transparent? How do we keep data through blockchain with the product through every step of the product's life? How do people along the recovery value chain access and contribute to that data? The data piece is something that I see as um, holding huge potential because from a sorting perspective, if you're collecting the material and you need to sort it, it could be automated. If that data is there and there's a way for a data system to interact with the garment, immediately that increases the efficiency of sorting, you know, a hundredfold. Well, as you've kind of noted, circularity really requires collaboration. Like we have to work together as an industry in order to fully achieve circularity. There's no unilateral activity that any one organization or person can, can undergo that will help us achieve a circular system. Are there any collaborative actions that you think are really working toward the systems change that we need to move toward a fully circular industry? I think there are different initiatives that are trying to uncover, you know, answers for how to move forward. But I still think that we're lacking a truly collaborative and inclusive initiative that leverages real expertise from across the recovery value chain to move an initiative forward. You know, we need to look at the system holistically. We need to focus on a specific area, like a specific geographic region. 
We need to get the municipalities involved and we need to think about how we can process materials at scale. I mean, I know I keep saying at scale, but it's so it's really so important. You can't have a single brand that wants a single product line to be fully circular because, you know, there's very limited recycled content, for example, on the market right now, even with recycled PET. So uh, PET is a form of polyester and you can take, you can make polyester from recycled water bottles. You can make water bottles from chemically recycled polyester. Right now, we don't have a lot of chemically recycled polyester, but we do have some level of recycling for our PET packaging and and water bottles and things like that. And there's an extremely high amount of competing demand for that RPET. And the lower cost outlet for that RPET is to go into fiber instead of going back into packaging, especially, you know, food grade packaging. And so there's competing demand among industries too. You have the beverage industry who needs to meet their publicly stated goals and, and they have ambitions to incorporate more recycled content, but then a lot of it's flowing into fiber for textiles and apparel, but there's not nearly enough available to meet all the demand for textiles and apparel. And so you can have a brand, one brand trying to make one product fully circular, but there's only so much of that available. As soon as that supply, as soon as we reach that threshold and we run out of supply of RPET, for example, then what? You know, we, we need to really tax. So right now, I think there's some low-hanging fruits and the successes that people are announcing are related to that because of the low amounts of supply that they're taking up that are available on the market now. And they're doing like very tailored individual take-back programs that are expensive to operate. And these kinds of things are not going to work at scale. So in order to really move the needle and make it something that's available to mainstream brands and smaller brands, we really have to look at the system solution. And I don't necessarily think there's like one answer, right? Like I know I, I talk about having a textile MRF a lot, but that can take many different forms. It doesn't have to be one facility that has everything under one roof. It can be many different players operating different parts of that, but it's the concept of at-scale collection and processing for various end markets. Can you tell our audience what a MRF is? Oh yeah, a material recovery facility. So just like we know your curbside recyclables get collected by your truck, they may go to a transfer station, but they're, eventually they get tipped at a material recovery facility. And there's a whole lot of equipment, um, conveyors and sorting equipment that separates all your recyclables out back into their respective you know, material types, into their bales. So it's the same concept for that, but just applied to textiles. Do you happen to have the latest on the fiber sort expedition where they're at in their journey of becoming a pretty big MRF recycling center? Yeah, well, I actually don't know if fiber sort is operating at scale anywhere. I feel like they are, but there's Tamra is an equipment manufacturer and they also have automated fiber sorting equipment, a technology that they use. It's similar. It's, I think it's the same technology that's used to sort plastics. It's the infrared yeah, spectroscopy, I think. And they have a facility in Malmo, Sweden that was commissioned through a joint 
jointly funded program. It's, it's mostly government funded right now. So that's operating and it's just doing fiber sorting. So it's just taking the non-rewearable portion of the waste stream from a sorter grader and running that through the fiber sort. And then they have offtake partners like Renewcell and some other fiber to fiber recyclers. But it's all very experimental right now. And it's been government subsidized. So it, it, they're going to have to prove that they're self-sufficient, you know, financially. And, you know, we're all watching. We're all watching to see what happens and how that, how that plays out. And we're going to learn a lot from that. And I'm excited to, for them to, you know, publish their next report so we can see how it's going. You mentioned quite a bit, you know, the concept of scale that our solutions, technologies need to be able to scale. But do you have any specific things that you think need to happen that are really key to that formula of getting projects and innovations from prototype to scale? Well, one example I can think of is we need to know the fiber composition of our waste stream, right? I mean, we know in general, how much polyester is used. We know in general how much cotton is used, but nobody knows the frequency of the different blends that show up in the garments that are thrown away or in, you know, the textiles, home textiles that are thrown away. And without knowing that, we don't really know the fiber recycling value of what's in our waste. And without knowing that, the chemical recyclers aren't going to be able to scale and are not going to be able to really proof their business models. So fiber content analysis, I think is going to be really important on real post-consumer textile waste and pre-consumer. The post-industrial is mostly, you know, known. I mean, I think, you know, the fiber mills and the fabric mills basically know the content of that, but it's really the finished goods that we need to know how much high content cotton is there, how much high content polyester is there, how much of it has, you know, spandex over three or 5% and things like that, that really impact the business case for fiber to fiber recycling. And then also what's the quality and the condition of, of the textiles in our waste stream? How much of it is really reusable? How much of it could be reusable if it, if it could go through like a small repair process? How much of it is really just better suited for downcycling or fiber to fiber recycling? Nobody knows any of that. And that's kind of key. <laughs> We're going to develop a circular economy. And if businesses really want, they want to emerge, but their business models are highly dependent on those kinds of answers. You know, we also need to know how much do collection systems cost and who's going to participate in them and how much are they going to participate in them? You know, what kind of capture rate can be expected? You know, how big of a supply uh, radius needs to be developed for any sorting or grading facility? What does their throughput need to look like in order to produce enough fiber sorted material for a chemical recycler to want to build their, one of their facilities nearby? Um, so there's a lot we can start working on right now that we need to just explore. And then there are other things that it's going to be harder to just research the answer. We're going to have to do a proof of concept. We're going to have to run trials. We're going to have to, you know, get multiple stakeholders together to just kind of work out what some of the answers to those outstanding questions are. So speaking of scale, backtracking a little bit to kind of the overarching impact that we hope Circularity to have 
on the industry and on the climate. So McKinsey says that in order to help keep global warming within 1.5 degrees Celsius, the fashion industry would need to cut its GHG emissions to 1.1 billion metric tons by 2030. And so that's assuming that we're able to scale some of these technologies. There's so much to focus on and so many, so much progress that we need to make in the industry. But they also say that a 1% increase in circular model market share would reduce emissions by 13 million metric tons of CO2. And that only represents a little over 1% of the overall reduction that we need to have in the industry. So a really tiny proportion of the reduction that we need to have if we can maybe get some of our technologies to scale enough that, that we can increase our circular model market share by 1%. And that's kind of a mouthful of those statistics, but saying that to say that we need to have a really big impact as an industry in a really short amount of time. It's only, you know, we're less than 10 years away now. Mm-hmm. And we have to, first of all, achieve all of our goals as it relates to circularity to even get there, to have the impact. But once we even get there, circularity alone can't even achieve the impact that we want to achieve. And so you mentioned this earlier, the issue in the system with overproduction and overconsumption. But as long as we are producing and consuming at the rates that we are, we cannot see the impact that we need to see, or at least the impact reduction that we need to see in the industry. So I'm curious, kind of going back to that conversation, is that what we need to be focusing on more? Uh, the production and consumption aspect. Mm-hmm. I think we definitely do. Yeah. I mean, circularity is, I guess in concept, circularity, we would just be maintaining the level of, it would be cutting off growth to the point that you're at as soon as, because you wouldn't be extracting any more resources. And if our population continues to grow, but our consumption remains at that baseline level, I don't know, maybe that's okay. And maybe it's coupled with, you know, totally separate innovations around carbon sequestration and things like that. But I do absolutely think that there is, you know, a serious conversation to be had around our consumer mindset and not not just in the U.S., but globally. I do think we need to reduce consumption. I don't think that we need as much as we currently think we need and move away towards that materialistic view. And yeah, I mean, I think that there's almost a sense of optimism in there because it's like, look how much progress we can make. Look how much of a difference we can make. And it's really going to be a sense of accomplishment each step along the way. And I also think that, sure, we're off to a slow start, but it's a really heavy lift. We're, we're changing consumer mindsets. We're changing an entire industry, an entrenched industry that's been doing business the way it's been doing business for hundreds of years. and. I think that once we start gaining momentum and we're just in that point of like, we're rolling the rock uphill. Um, As soon as we get to the top of the hill, I anticipate just natural growth, organic, you know, uptake of of new systems. And, you know, the smaller brands are going to be able to adopt the practices because the path has been laid for them and the circular resources are available to them. And it doesn't require a lot of their investment, research and development dollars investment because they don't have it. If you think about it, even the top 100 brands, I think, in fashion represent less than 1% of the entire market. So it's going to take a good amount of effort to really make an impact on the rest of the market and make circularity accessible to the rest of the fashion market um, in terms of the brands. But I think we'll reach that tipping point where it's just going to really catalyze and really be adopted very quickly. 
Yeah. We know brands have a leverage point in the system to pull on and consumers do as well. And the the whole system of that coming together is really that there are even more detrimental effects of us exporting our waste. And I'm curious if you can talk to us a little about you, that you started talking about how, you know, there's lots of developing countries that are getting waste dumped on them that also want the chance to prosper. Can you tell us a little bit about the power dynamics and the textile waste system and tying it back to overproduction and consumption? Yeah. So the brands have, you know, major power in the system, right? That's why when you're talking about policy and legislation, it's generally focused on the producer, which is generally the brand owner. They, especially in fashion, they really control the supply chains and can dictate how supply chains operate or how they don't operate. Now, it's definitely complex. That's not to say it's easy. Um, There's definitely a lot of complexities and, and a lot of that complexity is due to the, the lack of transparency that's in there and, and how many times things move around the world and change hands and change ownership and the way contracting works. But out of anyone in the recovery value chain, the brands have a lot of power. The large brands, right? And some of the retailers, the retailer, the large retailers also. So that's on the supply side, right? So the demand, the brands can really dictate what happens throughout the supply chain. On how on the waste side of things, it's all about the value of the material and who's willing to pay for it. A lot of our waste is exported. A lot of our textile waste is, ex- well, first of all, only 15% of our textile waste is even recovered. So take a step back. The majority of the textile waste that Americans generate goes straight to landfill or incineration. End of story. Goodbye resources. The 15% that is collected travels through a pretty complex recovery network. A lot of it, let's say, you know, is donated to a charity or a thrift store or through a collection bin is somehow collected. Most of that ends up at a broker or an aggregator who bails the materials and exports it to a sorter grader overseas. And that's because the labor for sorting and grading is high and we can't afford to do that in the United States. And so the Sorting and grading happens overseas. A lot of it happens in Pakistan, I think. And then the final bales of sorted textiles are shipped to emerging markets. So you take Africa, for example. There's an organization called Dead White Man's Clothes or something like that. And they've done a lot of really interesting data collection and tracking of what happens to textiles that are exported. And according to the markets that they interact with, they use clothing markets, they interact with there. They've been able to demonstrate that the majority of textiles that reach port are discarded right away. They don't even reach the used clothing market. And then of what does reach the used clothing market, only some of it is actually sold and whatever is not sold is disposed of. So, you know, the Eastern African countries have been pushing back a lot against about, you know, to importing used clothing they're saying it's hurting their own domestic manufacturing markets. Wasn't there a ban just a, a couple, maybe three or four years back, five years back, and a bunch of countries banded together to do an import ban? And the only country I think that uh, succeeded was Rwanda, and they only succeeded to ban underwear from being imported into their country. Yeah, yeah, because the United States threatened, you know, duty tax. I mean, yeah, right. That's the way politics works. And 
there are different sides of the equation. Like there are different perspectives on, on that whole issue. There are some interests that say that like the use good trade provides jobs and it provides access to quality goods at low prices and it extends the lifespan of clothing that otherwise would have gone to the landfill. Then there are other interests that says like, oh, you know, developed countries are dumping their waste on underdeveloped countries that don't have adequate systems to really handle them. Then there's, you know, interests that say it's impacting our own domestic manufacturing, but it just hasn't been documented or studied really well enough to say who's right. And part of it is just kind of like an ethical question. I, I don't know, but it can't be overlooked also that, you know, fast fashion has exploded and the introduction of some of the Chinese manufacturers into Africa has also impacted the manufacturing economies of those places. So it's not just the used clothing. It's a really complex issue. And, and who has the power in that situation? I don't know. I mean, obviously, the generating country has the power to not export and to develop local demand and local end markets for the materials. And that's really the ultimate solution. Let's keep materials in circulation, you know, as close to the point of where they're generated as waste as possible. It's really interesting because I visited a textile collector here in Milan and they they had basically said that the demand for these used textiles was outweighing the supply or out, outpacing the supply. And that was really going against everything that I had thought about the industry. So you're kind of confirming my, you know, what I had previously understood of kind of this global system of shipping used textiles around the world. And, and as you said, like dumping them in some communities that maybe don't want them or don't need them or that it may be affecting their, their local industries. But I was wondering, do you have any examples of community-led initiatives that are really able to treat and deal with their own waste at the kind of a super hyper-local level? Yeah, that's a good question. So just to comment on, on that global dynamic of, of the trade, it's a fragile ecosystem too. I mean, it's, you're, you're talking about commodities who have very low margins, very, very low margins. And things like the global pandemic can really impact how those, just like how the pandemic impacted a lot of different um, industries. So in some cases, because of the pandemic, donations were down. And so sometimes, yeah, demand was greater than supply. But on the local, how do you create hyper-local systems? You know, you take New York City, for example. They have programs to encourage the reuse and recycling of clothing. So they have a program called Refashion NYC. It's a partnership with a charity called Housing Works. um, And also, I think Goodwill is a subcontractor. And they put clothing collection bins in any apartment building over a certain number of units, maybe 20 units. I can't remember anymore. And so that's one way that the municipality is, you know, stepping in to help develop a collection system for clothing and something that's super convenient, right? And the municipality is the one who has the contract with the collector and the charity. And it's, you know, the municipality doesn't profit off of it at all, but it also doesn't cost, you know, the New York City government any money. So that's one way. I've seen other places that provide funding for different innovation, different types of innovation, for market and market development policy 
is another way to create local systems, whether that's through recycled content mandates or through disposal bans or mandatory recycling or EPR or tax incentives. There's a lot of different ways that policy can be developed in a supportive way. There are also municipalities who have contracted with textile collectors. They have curbside textile collections. But again, until we have better and local end markets, a lot of this is just flowing into that global trade, global use clothing trade that we just talked about, right? So is it the best solution? No, but you got to start somewhere, right? And you got to start building people's behavior to not put textiles in, in the garbage. So I, you know, which comes first, you know, are, are you putting the cart before the horse when you implement collection, but you don't have really a great place to bring all that? I don't know. I mean, I think anything is better than nothing. And I think that you got to build people's, you know, got to build a behavior change. I think that's interesting to think about. And also just thinking about local communities and what kind of is existing that is in a bit of a closed system, but maybe we don't recognize as an industry as being like part of the circular system. You think about things like clothing swaps and swap fairs, like living in Los Angeles on the side of town that I do, I see stuff like that all the time. And so there's also this reality that there are communities who have been living in like as circular as systems as we have right now for a long time. And we don't really recognize those activities for what they are, that there's like an extension of the life of products for as long as possible. And then there is like passing that product on when it, once it's no longer useful to you, to someone else in your community. And then that happens over and over and over until like really the product can no longer be used in its existing state. Yeah. And I, I feel like just like with so much in the sustainability movement, there's this like up here conversation that we have for people who have like studied sustainability and we've like gotten to this point in our careers and we're working with brands and larger organizations. And we talk sometimes about the innovations of our industry as if we created them. And there are communities that are already practicing so much of this. And so that's why I love the like local question and what you're bringing up about like what's happening at a local level. And if we're collecting, but we don't have the other systems, like what else is needed? I'm curious if you see a, like a possibility to scale what's already happening at this hyper-local level or to like elevate what's already happening at the hyper-local level to be more magnified within the industry and in our industry conversation. Yeah, I mean, reuse and hand-me-downs, it's really, it's really going back to basics, right? We used to do this <laughs> until we became a globalized society. But I, I think enabling that kind, those kinds of interactions, right? Just like the right to repair movement. Um, you're really enabling, really empowering people to repair and to reuse and to share. I think that's how we can really scale that. And also getting some metrics around it. It's almost impossible to really get a handle on reuse, right? It's a very messy activity. It's not something simple to really put metrics on. And it's hard to track, it's hard to really know when it happens and you know what defines reuse and, and things like that. So I think also a key to, to scaling it is really understanding how much it's already happening and how much it can be scaled. And also, how do you just make it a more central part of the conversation and more visible? And I think there's a lot of outreach and education that still needs to be done around all the things that you're talking about. So we like to ask all of our guests, what is the number one question we should be asking the industry in order to achieve real change? 
where's the money? Who's willing to pay? <laughs> Who's going to put the bill? Totally. I mean, it's, it's, it's a real conversation. Fashion brands are not really structured in a way to allow for those kinds of investments that have very far out and risky returns. And so, yeah, a lot of the question is convincing either the brand or, or municipality or government to pay for the research that needs to be done. I mean, I think that's, that's really key. Yeah. Agree. I mean, we're seeing this in a lot of spaces where, or just across the industry that we don't have enough data. You know, people are making all of these claims and then we're finding out that actually we don't know where, you know, where that statement came from, but the whole industry is like just blanketed over every communication. Yeah. So yeah, that's, I think something that's essential, it keeps coming up in this conversation. So just one final thing. We always also like to ask our guests, who is your unspun hero? So it's a fun little thing that we've coined. So someone that is working in the industry that you would like to highlight that is not on a platform, is not, you know, maybe being interviewed on a podcast or on a panel. A specific individual? Mm-hmm. I have a few that, that, I mean, I think Tracy Kinden from Revolve Waste is doing amazing work. I think Cindy Rhodes from Warnigan Technologies is doing incredible. Well, she used to be from Warnigan Technology. I think she's doing amazing work to forge new paths. I think Rachel Kibbe uh, from Circular Services Group is doing amazing work. And I really admire the accomplishments and, and the thinking of um, Beth Jensen, formerly of VIA. So those are a few of you know the people that, I go to and I really respect and admire what they've been able to accomplish. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for, for having me and, you know, asking me all sorts of thought-provoking questions. And, you know, I, I love the idea of this podcast and, and having a place to go to listen to some industry insight. It's really exciting. Thanks for listening to another episode of Unspun and for joining the conversation to create a new vision for the future of fashion and home. Huge thanks to this episode's guest, Marissa Adler, for sharing her perspective on the industry. You can follow her work on LinkedIn. To join the conversation and learn more about us, follow us on Instagram at wearepopulation or visit our website, wearepopulation.com. Unspun is produced by Population, co-developed with Corey Cambridge and mixed by Compost Media Flow. Our theme music is by Richie Quake and cover art by Ryan Welch Designs. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.